Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Before we kick ourselves off, Cece's got something to tell you. This is a friendly reminder that next week on December 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom, I am offering my Hacking Writing on a Line Level class. I've been preparing for this class for the past two years. I've essentially rounded up all the best examples of strong writing on a line level, explaining the techniques that the authors are using, so you can then choose which techniques fit your own style and apply it to your own work. Links are in my bio if you want to join me. I hope to see you there. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, will you kick us off with the first query letter? Dear Carly Waters, it was so nice meeting you at the North Figueroa Bookshop in Highland Park for the Podlit event, which was so much fun. I attended with my critique partner, which I was matched with by Bianca Murray earlier this year. I would say that was a success, for we still continue to work together. I'm writing to you today seeking representation for my literary fiction, The Hidden a young adult psychological horror slash paranormal, complete at about 77,800 words. In this chilling tale set in the haunting landscapes of Iceland, Isa, a young girl who grapples with the sense of being an outsider, discovers her family is far from ordinary. Her grandmother is a hidden one, a mysterious being who entered our world as a child. 
and extraordinary abilities that have been passed down to Isa, whose dormant powers slowly awaken. The Hidden weaves self-discovery with nature conservancy amid Iceland's captivating backdrop, interlacing family, folklore, and self-sacrifice. But a sinister myth lingers in the background, the haunting tale of Nikur, a creature who lures its victims to their death, a curse only Isa can end. She embarks on a journey to restore balance, even if it means putting her own life in danger. Isa learns to embrace her gift and the role she plays in resetting the balance between nature and humanity. The Hidden underscores the profound impact of unity, reminding us that sometimes the very traits that set us apart are what can ultimately save the world. I was born and raised in Iceland and have a passion for Nordic folklore, which is still prevalent in Iceland to this day. The story I tell in this novel is just a taste of what strange things I witnessed as a teenager while living in the rural countryside. Fans of books such as Clover Blue, Where the Waters Turn Black, and City of Ghosts will be drawn to Isa's story. And though it's been nearly 10 years since it was published, I'd be remiss if I did not mention The Ocean at the End of the Lake. Gaiman's protagonist and Isa have in common that they both search for their self-identity. Much like Gaiman's novel, The Hidden will appeal to many age groups. In the vein of A24's Midsummer, The Hidden uses stunning Nordic scenery to obscure the dark forces at play in Isa's life. At the same time, the psychological horror-charged mystery hereditary draws comparisons to Isis' family who are haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. The Hidden is a standalone novel, but does have serious potential. I'm a member of Women's Fiction Writers Association and the Horror Writers Association. I would be thrilled if you would consider The Hidden for representation. Per your submission guidelines, I am including my first chapter. I would be happy to send the complete manuscript upon request. Thank you for your consideration. Mandy Artuazzo. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Okay, so I think that's quite on the long side. So what's the word count there? We clocked in at 483 words. So yes, I did say long-ish, which I think, I think I've kind of made my stance on this, which is like, I think over 420 words is long. I will call anything over 420 long. When we're getting the 400s, again, sometimes query letters, you know, just need to be what they need to be. But I would definitely say that this is long. So thank you for coming to that event. That was a super fun event in LA that I did with some other podcast hosts. And just so you guys know, I'm actually going to do a virtual version of that one in the new year with UCLA. So we're going to be doing that virtual. So anybody that obviously wasn't able to be in LA, really looking forward to revitalizing that in a virtual format. So stay tuned for that. Okay, back to the query letter. So I would say potentially this is paranormal horror. You say psychological horror slash paranormal. I think a lot of horror is psychological. Therefore, I don't think we need that repetition of psychological and horror. I'm just going to throw that out there as a potential way to kind of reframe it a little bit. I am obsessed with this location. The haunting landscapes of Iceland, really incredible. One of my favorite books of all time, which I've said this before in the podcast, is Burial Rites. It's an adult novel, but set in Iceland, a historical novel. I loved that book so much. So I I really enjoy this very intense, I think intense landscapes in terms of like intensity of weather is super interesting. So I, I really, really love that. So now let's get to the kind of the conceit here in terms of this paranormal magical element. So there is so much that's unsaid. There's so much that's going unsaid in this query letter. And a number of things where I'm like, okay, what's the consequence of this? Why now? Like, what does this actually mean? What's at stake if she doesn't succeed? You know, all of these questions we ask these type of science fiction fantasy or paranormal type of stories where the query letter is so surface level where we just really need to kind of get at the meat of what is happening in this actual book. So starting with this idea that her grandmother is a hidden one, a mysterious being who entered our world as a child. Everybody enters the world as a child when we are born. We are infants joining the world. So I'm like, okay, what does this mean that she enters the world as a child? Like, 
through another dimension? Was she a toddler, not an infant? Like I did have a million questions about that, right? So I didn't really feel like that was very clarifying in the way that maybe the author intended it to be. And then we have the passed down powers that slowly awaken. Why are they awakening now? You know, what does she have to do with them in this moment? I think that's really important. And really, like, I love these themes, right? Family, folklore, self-sacrifice, all of this is so interesting, but we're not getting at the plot of it, which is like what is happening in the sense that, you know, again, we, we need the plot of the folklore, the self-sacrifice and all of these elements. That's the type of stuff that I really, I really think we need to see. And, and because this query letter is so long and we can get to some of the ways that we can cut it, I'm so curious about usually when a query is really long, we understand so much more about the book because it's very long. In this case, I actually feel like I don't know very much about this book and this plot, even though it's so long, which makes me think we have a lot of work to do to kind of clarify the concept. And I want to know also what the abilities are. Like, I don't even know what these what these talents really are. So I think we have a ton of work to do in terms of clarifying the world building here. But ultimately, I think this is such a cool concept, which is why, you know, I would encourage you to really think think really clearly about what you're trying to accomplish with this. I love that this is, you know, some elements of what you witness as a teenager while living in the rural countryside of Iceland. Absolutely unique perspective. Now let's get to what we can cut. So your comps at the end, you essentially have two long paragraphs of comps. This is what we need to cut. We need to really just be mentioning one to two comps in one to two sentences. Everything else can be prepared in a separate document. Like if you feel like you have a lot to say about the, the world you've created, you can always send su supplementary material later on once an agent is interested in terms of, you know, some like marketing and positioning documents. Often when I'm interested in a project, I reach out to the author and I say, give me a longer list of comps. Tell me alternate titles. You know, tell me where this idea came from. Right. So this type of thing just isn't queer letter specific. It's more once you've kind of moved past those initial conversations. So I would really be trimming back the paragraph that starts fans of books and in the vein of those two can really go. But there's something here. There's something here, right? So I think it's just figuring out what it is that you really need us to know at this time. And it's really more about the world building of, of the magic. Thank you, Carly. Cece, what do you have to add to that? I wanted to know her age. I was curious about that. It would it would have made a difference in terms of her hero's journey. And I really like the fact that, like I, like Carly said, very cool concept. What I would do is rewrite the plot paragraph using the three guiding questions. What does Isa want? What is standing in her way? What happens if she doesn't get it? Rewrite it in that, answering those questions, and then try to see if you can fit it in. That's what I would do. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, can you give us an overview of what's in the opening pages? All right, here we go. So we start with, and I won't be able to pronounce the town in Iceland because I don't speak Icelandic. So it is a town that starts with the letter G. But we're, we have a timestamp. Uh, we're in Iceland in 1994. All right. So we start with our protagonist sitting in her classroom at school. As Cece mentioned, I'm like, oh yeah, we don't actually know how old she is. But I really got the sense, you know, we were probably in like upper middle school or like lower high school is kind of what I was thinking. So we meet our protagonist. She is in the classroom, kind of staring out the window, thinking about the weather, thinking about being in school, thinking about her classmates, maybe how she doesn't fit in, an argument that her parents had around, you know, the clothing that they're not buying her and she kind of wants to be up to date with that with some of the other students. There is a boy who is kind of bullying her 
He gets up to go to the bathroom. She starts thinking about her teacher outside of school, which is like a common childhood thing where you're like, oh, I wonder, wonder what my teacher's like when she's not here. And then we move into a little bit of the magic, which is that she is doing some sketching of a horse that she saw in a dream. And that is where we end. Thank you, Carly. Something that occurred to me while I was reading this piece is how we begin with her sitting and we end with her sitting. Five pages later, she herself has not moved. And this is something to be said for our listeners in terms of giving your characters opportunity to move on the page. Movement on the page means movement in terms of the plot. Too much sitting equals too much thinking equals too much interiority. That's my take on it. Carly, what do you think? Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. That was one of my main notes. It was interesting to me when the bully is the one that got up to go to the bathroom. It should have been her to get up to go to the bathroom. Just again, if that's the only opportunity for movement. But I definitely question if we're starting in the right place. Absolutely. You know, we're talking about weather, which I struggled with because this is such an interesting landscape, right? So like, I want to know about the scene, the setting happening here. And because it's some sort of like psychological horror, paranormal horror happening, I want to know the eeriness of the setting, right? Like there has to be a huge like wave of setting that like washes over the reader so early in the pages. And so I think we're like, we're scratching the surface of that type of thing. So I would definitely say... Let's think about whether we're starting in the right place. Another reason I'm not sure we're starting in the right place is because this so far feels absolutely like a typical day in this in this child's life. There's nothing to me that says this is an abnormal day. And then at the end, we get the dream stuff, which, you know, I don't know. To me, dreams are tough because I totally understand in terms of this paranormal element where it's, you know, it's it's a way for these realms or these worlds to maybe collide. I get that. But calling it a dream, those are one of those things where it's like, oh, does it have to be a dream? <laughs> we just see so many, so many dreams. You know, I have some notes in here about the most curiosity inducing line. I will read this to you because I thought this was this was really interesting. This is them talking. To, this is her kind of thinking about the fight that her parents had around her clothing and she she says her clothes are ragged dull and torn but north america in the 90s like grunge was really in so i was so interested like oh is was you know the style different in iceland so maybe i don't know the expectations were a little bit different there so again i'm putting my complete north american lens on this of course you know as the reader who is reading this i'm like oh that was interesting to me that she wouldn't think like oh i'm just like trying to be grunge or whatever and then she the curiosity inducing line that i wanted to focus on here was she said my mom has this penchant for wanting to fix everything, always insists on patching them up, but I prefer to keep the holes and tears. I want her to see them because what mom doesn't realize, she only breaks things just so she can fix. I was like, that was a super interesting line. I have a million questions about that. That to me was the most interesting part of these pages by far. Not that you have to like go on and then, you know, explain this to me or anything, but that was super interesting to me in terms of mother-daughter dynamics because that's always a really interesting topic. And then one of the other things, I think Bianca hit the nail on the head with one of the most important part of these pages, but second most important part of these pages to me was this idea that it was in first person, yet I have no idea who she's speaking to, if that makes sense. Like there were so many things where she was telling us a lot of things. And I'm like, okay, if this is, if we know that you're kind of narrating something to the reader or it's third person, we, we know that there's kind of an exchange of information that has to happen from that point of view. In first person, the amount of explaining that she's doing, I'm like, who are you explaining? this for because you 
are the person in that chair. Like you are the first person. And so the interiority is for yourself. So there obviously could be some self-reflection, but there was this line that said, Icelanders are very progressive and have done away with a lot of traditions. Some even admiring and copying other countries because of the illusion of a perfect life through the movies. I'm like, that would be super interesting in terms of like nonfiction content or again, telling this in another way. This is first person, but if this was third person, I, I don't know. I was just, I really struggled with this idea that that's the type of thing that she would, this character would say to herself in first person. So that was the other kind of like craft structure thing that came up for me. But I love this setting. I, I think it's super, super interesting and rich. Thank you, Carly. Some advice for the author there is that that is the kind of thing that you can have two characters perhaps musing on. They're having a discussion about that kind of thing about Icelanders, you know? So if that's something that as the author you want to work into a first-person piece, create opportunities where this topic of conversation comes up because it is really interesting for the reader. You've just got to find the right context for it. Okay, Cece? This starts with the weather, right? And there's a line that reads, such conditions are typical for Iceland in the fall. And then later on, we have the line that Carly also read that said, Icelanders are very progressive. The way she's thinking about her own country, her own people, does not feel natural to me. Like, I don't think that anyone sits in the classroom and goes, Brazilians are, or South Africans are, or Canadians are, or Americans are. Like, that is just people to you. So for me, it read like she wanted to cater to the non-Icelandic reader, which of course, author, I get you wanting that. You want to widen your readership. That is smart. But I don't think that this is the way to do it. I think it doesn't sound natural. It sounds a little removed. And this connects to the other note I have. Like she, throughout these pages, she is analyzing her lack of popularity. And she goes through theories, you know, maybe it's this reason why I'm not popular. Maybe this other reason why I'm not popular. And it felt really removed, you know? It felt like she was analyzing the situation in a way that wasn't her situation. There wasn't any emotion attached to the feelings she had, the the messy feelings. I wanted messy feelings, of course. I always want messy feelings. So I'm wondering if that clinical removed approach is intentional. Perhaps it is. Perhaps that's just her voice and that's part of her quirkiness. If so, I would just lean into it even more. Like either if it's not intentional, edit it. Or if it is, lean into it even more so that we can really feel that this child is someone who who has that quirky, clinical, perhaps removed way of, of thinking. Because that could be really interesting too. And I just want to echo that I really love the setting. I, I want to read a novel set in Iceland now. Thank you, Cece. Something I'd like to add from sort of a line level writer perspective, for many of you out there who are writing in first person, we have a sentence here that goes, I sit at a desk at the back of the room. Try and avoid these kinds of phrases, things like I walk to my car or I sit in my office or I whatever, because try and build that in organically. So from my vantage point at the very back of the room, I look out the window and spot, right? Or or something like that, which gives the reader the situational setting information, but not in this way that is, I am here, I am doing this, right? Same as instead of I walk to my car, it could be something like, walking to my car, I trip over an umbrella, etc, etc, so that it becomes much more organic rather than subject, a verb of being, and then an object. So, you know, I am happy or I sit at my desk, subject, verb, object, try and build that in in a much more organic way, especially in the first person, because otherwise it feels like the narrator is just 
taking you through the motions. I sit at my desk, I stand, I go to the door, I open the door, right? Which is not what you want. So so for all of you writing in first person, have a look for those kinds of sentences. Alrighty, we're now going to Cece's query letter. Dear Cece Lira, it was only a year ago that I first started listening to the shit no one tells you about writing. The motivation, encouragement, and practical know-how that I gained from listening to all of you discuss query letters and first pages is immeasurable. I am seeking representation for my 45,000-word debut middle-grade novel, Redacted. Redacted combines the tough narrator with a heart of gold from Gary Schmidt's Okay For Now with the emotional saga of the remarkable journey of Coyote Sunrise by Dan Gamehart and adds a touch of the 1990s film classic My Girl. When George's dad gets a new job, his family of eight moves to Lafayette, Indiana. George is desperate to use the summer to find friends and a sense of belonging outside his home, especially since he is sure that something about him triggers his mom's ever-present depression. But the first kid he meets, Lloyd, with his oversized t-shirt, World War II references, and his penchant for pretending squirrels are enemy soldiers, is most definitely an outcast. George's suspicions are confirmed when his new soccer teammates, Eric and Drew, make fun of Lloyd for living in a funeral home. When Eric, Drew, and George vandalize Andrew's funeral home, George takes all the blame and is forced to spend the rest of his summer repairing the damage and his reputation. While at the funeral home, a friendship slowly forms with Lloyd. George discovers that the Andrews are on the verge of going out of business and the vandalism may be the nail in the coffin. Pun fully intended. At home, tensions continue to mount and chaos reigns as George's mom's depression worsens and his feelings of disconnection deepen. His oldest sister, Mary Catherine, struggles to adjust to the move and the boyfriend she left behind. When she runs away, George knows that he must bring his family together to find Mary Catherine. Once Mary Catherine is home, the truth about his mom's depression is revealed. Combining what he learned about the grief, healing, and forgiveness from Lloyd and the funeral home, George is able to hold a delayed funeral for Michael, the baby brother who died of SIDS when George was one. Like George, I moved to Lafayette, Indiana as a kid, but I have vandalized no funeral homes in the passing years. I am a longtime middle school English teacher, and I specialize in helping young writers find their voices. I have guided many middle school writers entering the scholastic writing competition. When I'm not teaching or writing, I'm refereeing fights between my three boys and taking long walks with my husband. Attached are the first five pages. May I send you my full manuscript? Sincerely, Emily Moulter. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, word count and then your take on that. This one came in at 471 words, which is a little on the long side and actually connects to my one of my notes here, which is that I think you're getting into a lot of detail we don't need. An example would be the sharp specifics about Lloyd, the quirky friend. I love sharp specifics. Please include all the sharp specifics in your pages, and they're really, really strong, so congratulations. We don't need that level of detail in the query letter, though, just because it's taking up space. Same with details about, like, the soccer team, right? Like, it can just be new friends. Like, there's a lot that you can compress here, so I would encourage you to look at those plot paragraphs and compress. I love the quirkiness of the funeral home setting. I love the slowly building friendship between George and Lloyd. I'm envisioning... I read this and I'm envisioning a really sweet novel. And I love that. Like, I love that. It's middle grade. It's not a genre I represent. But but I remember being, being that age and reading those books. And so I really, really, really like that. What you did really well was connect the conflict of the funeral home. They're going out of business, right? With the protagonist. 
Obviously, George is not to blame for the funeral home because he's just a kid, but he sees how his actions contributed to that. So that's excellent. You want your protagonist to be the sun. Your protagonist should always be the sun and everyone else should be planets revolving around your protagonist. I wanted that as well with Mary Catherine running away. I want George somehow to blame himself for it or maybe not blame himself, maybe some other type of plot connection. Maybe he kept a secret from Mary Catherine and, you know, because of the secret, no one noticed that she ran away until it was too late. So he kind of blames himself. I don't know. I don't know what it could be, but I really wanted that so that we could feel like he has protagonism. Protagonists need protagonism. And I'm also wondering, are you maybe giving us spoilers? For example, once Mary Catherine is home, do we need to know that she came back? Like maybe that's a spoiler. The baby brother, Michael, like that also feels like a spoiler. So yeah, I'm wondering if these are spoilers and I if they are, I would rethink them. Also another thing, I know that the reference to the movie My Girl, which by the way I always sing the song in my head when I read the movie's title, indicates that this takes place in the 90s, but I would make it clearer because, you know, I missed it. I didn't make the connection. So when I saw the timestamp in the pages, I was like, "Oh, this takes place in the 90s." So I would make that extra clear for us tired agents. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, I think writers are constantly hearing specificity, specificity. And so they become overly specific in the query letter to make up for that specificity. So it really, really is tough. Okay, Carly, your thoughts? So this is really interesting around this idea of like whether they're spoilers or not. That's a really good question. If they are spoilers, again, that's something to think about. But to me, this read so incredibly professional. Like as Cece said, the fact that this they they connected all of these dots, like everything is in motion, working together. Like to me, this is just like Chef's Kiss middle grade, right? Where it's just like that that interconnectedness. Again, the protagonist going on this journey, the community members kind of coming together in this way. I don't know. Like I felt very like because of Win Dixie, like vibe. I felt some because of Win Dixie vibes here which is great. Like, I think this really is hitting that sweet spot, right? Where it's like, there's some heavier subject matter, but we do know that that children can can handle heavy subject matter. I would just be paying attention, as Cece said, to how much of this is spoilers versus how much we kind of need to know at this point. But like, when I got to the point about, you know, to hold the delayed funeral for Michael, the baby brother who died of, of SIDS when George was born, that's so sad and just heartbreaking right and is like is that something as the reader that we learn really early on is this a thread that we kind of that we carry with us through the novel versus is this something that comes out a bit later on because this is such a bomb dropping moment where people are going to remember that from the query letter into the pages so they're going to be wondering like oh when are we going to find that out if that makes sense so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really think this is just so tight and really professionally done. And yeah, I just I think this person did a great job. Thank you, Carly. Right. We'll discuss the pages now, which I found really delightful. Cece, can you give us an overview of them? So we have our protagonist, that's George and his family. They're moving in. The house is filled with boxes. His mom is directing everyone. George is tasked with carrying the box with framed wedding photos up the stairs but when he's going up the stairs his sister like lunges onto him and he drops the box and that causes his mom to retreat into herself he recognizes the vacant stair so he takes his bike leaves the house and that's when he sees the first child like the first kid then he goes after this kid and this kid is lloyd 
and we meet Lloyd and he's exactly like described in the query letter. I kind of love Lloyd. And they're chatting and they're chatting about George's big family and George realizes he has to go home or else he'll be in trouble because they will notice that he's missing. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what was your take on them? I love the the idea here. I really like George. I like how how sweet he is. I did wonder if he sounds like a kid. There were a few instances that to me, he didn't read like a child. So as he's riding his bike, he thinks to himself, I can just imagine my fancy new neighbors swinging on their porches with glasses of cool lemonade in their hands. Maybe it's just me, but that didn't feel like a kid thought. Why would he be thinking about the the neighbors with glasses of lemonade? Like, I feel like he would be thinking of more kid-like kid-like activities because he's comparing the old houses with the new houses, which I really liked. And that was a good thing to do. There's another example too, when when he thinks about his his neighbors, his old neighbors, he says the Coulters who lived in the blue two-story had as many pets as we have kids. Again, that read as adult to me, like we have kids. When they talk about his big family, it's framed around his parents, how his parents feel about having so many kids. I just wanted more of it to sound like like a child, which I didn't get. And it might be just, just a me problem, like all things. His, his interiority, I would want it to be from his very specific birth order perspective. It's often said that comparison is a thief of joy, but comparison in storytelling is the helper or the giver of character development. So... I wanted more comparison, right? Like, and I wanted him to, for example, ask Lloyd how many brothers and sisters Lloyd has because Lloyd asks him, but he doesn't reciprocate the question. And I wanted him to be like, oh, lucky Lloyd if he's an only child or maybe lucky Lloyd if all he has is one brother. I don't know. We all compare all the time, but kids compare even more. So so I would want that. I would want his interiority to be just a bit more specific to him. Another thing I really wanted too was just more emotions. For example, more emotions and more opinions. Like when his mom is directing everyone like an air traffic controller, which by the way is such a great line. Does he love her bossiness? Does he love it when she's take charge? Maybe he would think to himself that this is the mom he loves more. And I'd be curious because like what other mom is there, right? And then we'd learn about the vacant stare. I just wanted more opinions and I kept highlighting a whole bunch of moments where I was like, and how does he feel about this? So much of this is is through the perspective of a family. And I love that. Like family stories are my favorite. And I wanted to know, like, does he envy his friends who are only children? Because I know that he's saying like, we're not the perfect family, but like, how does he feel about it with more specificity? Is it pity? Like, does he wish he were the eldest? Maybe that's his thing. Like he, he doesn't mind the big family, but he wishes he were the eldest so he could boss everyone around. Or I don't know. I definitely wanted more, which is a really, really great thing. And I really like Lloyd. Like I thought Lloyd was a really cool, quirky character. Thank you, Cece. Before I hand across to Carly, I just want to say these pages were incredibly well written. And this is the thing. When we get pages that are incredibly well written, we're able to focus on next level stuff. And for those of you who often reach out to me saying, when should I get an editor on my work? I've written a first draft. Should I get an editor now? And I always say, make the work as good as you possibly can to get as much value out of that editor as possible. Because if an editor is fixing writing on the line level, if they're fixing entry level things, they don't get to elevate the work and really see it on this big picture degree that CC is looking at this work now. So so when the work is as polished as it can be, those who read it are able to just elevate it that much more. Right. So Carly, can we get your take on it? 
I definitely agree. I thought this was very, very professional. Just like I thought the query letter was very professional. The things that stood out to me, I think there was like a little bit of stage direction type of thing I kind of want to talk about because meeting so many characters on the first page often is something I struggle with because I think about how readers get overwhelmed or, you know, agents or editors, like we have to keep all of this type of thing straight. And so the fact that this novel hinges on the idea that there are so many siblings is interesting to me. I wonder a couple of things. Do we need to meet them all by name here? Are we going to meet them? Are we going to have such an intimate relationship with each sibling that we are going to know their personalities? Therefore, we have to kind of really grasp them on the first page like that. The other thing I wonder about, which, you know, is totally up for discussion is like, why do we need this many siblings? You know, oftentimes I'll look at a, you know, I'll look at a manuscript and I'll think, you know, why do we need two best friends? Like that when one best friend can do the job of the supplementary character for the dialogue to go back and forth. And, you know, why do we need a dinner party with seven people? Would four people accomplish that? Do you know what I'm trying to say? When we think about how this scene is being crafted and how we're kind of stepping into this as the reader, I really wonder about whether we need this many siblings potentially. Again, I have not read the rest of the book, so I have no idea where it goes. So it could be advice that's unintended. But coming back to the fact of the first pages, we're just, we're meeting too many people. The other thing is, you know, you say at one point, like, I love our new room, Megan, who's eight, says. Me too, replies six-year-old Caitlin. That type of thing where it's like spelling out their ages like that. I would have loved if you had said, you know, they're two years apart. Because you know what can accomplish the fact that they're six and they're eight is the way that they're speaking, the way that they're speaking to each other, the fact that they're talking in this little like sing-songy way and they're talking about their new room, like super cute. And so you don't have to tell me that they're six and they're eight. You can just say, oh, you know, the two sisters who are, you know, two years apart. I don't know. These are the types of things I think we really have to really think about the stage directions of this because I think the scene itself is awesome. I love this scene. I love what happens. But those are the things that that stood out to me when I'm thinking about how am I going to process all of these characters? And, and why do I need to know all these characters and in, in what's happening? So as everybody said, I think this is I think this is really well done. But those are the things that stood out to me. Thank you, Carly. Yeah, just for our listeners, in terms of what I said earlier about movement on the page, you know, for this character, he's with his mom, he takes the box from his mom, he goes to start walking up the stairs, he gets rammed into by one of his sisters who's jumping down the stairs, he drops the box, he then goes outside, he gets on his bicycle, he starts cycling, he chases down a kid, he has a conversation with the kid. So look at how much action, physical action is in these first five pages, which really does help stop the problem of just too much sitting and thinking and interiority. My only, well, line feedback to this author, I have made notes, which will be available to our Kofi supporters, but please, for all of our listeners, read your work aloud. So this author repeated the phrase funeral home three times successively, very close together in the query letter. There's a lot of repetition of the box, the box, the box. And then we got porch and porch swing and porches, a lot of repetition of that close together. So find synonyms, restructure your sentences in ways that the reader does not become aware of the repetition of these kinds of words. Something for us all to think about. Right, Carly and Cece, thank you so, so much for your critiques. Helpful as always. Now let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the USA Today and internationally best-selling author of 11 novels for teens and adults, which have been chosen for library reads, Indie Next, and Amazon Best of the Month. And they've also been translated into 13 languages. She has a BA in English from Penn State University and an MFA from the University of Arizona. Born and raised in the suburb of Philadelphia, she currently lives in Arizona with her husband and two sons. It's my pleasure to welcome Jillian Cantor. Jillian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, geez. You know, I'm looking at this bio and then I went and had a look at the books that you have written. So for our listeners, the book that we're discussing today is called The Fiction Writer. But I went back and looked at the other books that Gillian has worked on 
And it's something you don't see a lot of in publishing today, because in publishing today, what publishers love to do is they love to put us in a category. They love to say, this is a historical fiction author. All of her books will look the same visually, will use the same kind of font so that the reader always knows what they're getting when they go into the store and, and pick up this particular book. But here's the thing with Gillian. She writes rom-coms, historical fiction, literary fiction, suspense, etc. So Gillian, firstly, can we talk about that? Because it's really unusual in publishing today to see that. Yeah. You know, I think first of all, I've been in publishing for a little bit of time. <laughs> so I think my first book was published in 2009, which is, you know, light years ago in publishing. But yeah, you know, I feel like I, as a writer, get kind of tired of doing the same thing over and over again. You know, it's I always want to be writing what I'm passionate about, what I love, and I don't want to be put in that box. I will point out that I did move publishers for the fiction writer <laughs> and, you know, that that my old publisher did want me to continue writing historical fiction. And I just felt like as a writer, I needed to do something different. You made me feel very good about myself, that introduction. Thank you. <laughs> but I think the actual, you know, sort of nitty gritty of it is it has been a little bit difficult to switch, you know, from time to time. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Did you move publishers? Because publishers do. That's what they love to do. They love to pigeonhole you because it makes their jobs easier, right? So in terms of your agent, have you had to change agents as well as you pivoted? Or were you with an agent who's like, you know, Jillian, you do you and I'm going to do my best to make it happen for you? Yes, that one. I've been with the same agent I think I signed with her in 2007 and I've been with the same agent the whole time. So she's great. She gets excited about everything I'm excited about. And I can't tell you how many times I've emailed her and said, I have this crazy idea. You're going to kill me. <laughs> and she's always excited about it. So yeah, she's fabulous. And for our listeners, this is why we say time and again that the right agent is so incredibly important because it's the most important relationship you will have in your publishing career. You will change publishers, you will change editors, but if you have an agent who gets you, who champions you, who encourages all of your whims and every flight of fancy you have in terms of, I believe you can do this, then that enables you to do what your job is, which is to sit down and write the best damn book you possibly can. And then it's up to your agent to sell it. And it's up to your you know, publishing house to then get it in the hands of as many readers as possible. Yeah. Something that I'm saying on the podcast a lot, Jillian, is what I dislike is intellectual snobbery when it comes to books because you have groups of people who are like well it only has value if it's literary fiction or if it's you know historical fiction but like a rom-com or a thriller or a suspense that doesn't really have literary value and I'm first and foremost a reader before I'm a writer and I learn something about the craft from every single genre I read and when I myself change genres I have to learn all new things about the craft as well so can we speak a bit about that how writing in all these different genres has perhaps made you a better writer. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, I always think of myself as a reader first, and I never want to write a book that I don't want to read myself. And I also, I feel like I am a pretty, I'm, I read very widely, but if I start a book and I'm not enjoying it, I will put it down. I give myself 50 pages and there's a lot of books that I've put down after 50 pages. And I feel like I should be reading 
for joy. I shouldn't be reading because someone tells me that this is an amazing book and, you know, we all have different opinions or that, you know, it's a, a book that I, I should like because it has some value. It's, I, I like to read things that I enjoy and I feel that way about writing too. I want to write something that I would enjoy to read. Was there something about this book that perhaps taught you about writing that your other books hadn't? Now, while you think about that answer, I'm just going to read the jacket copy for our listeners. So we're talking about the fiction writer. So it says, the once rising literary star Olivia Fitzgerald is down on her luck. Her most recent novel, A Retelling of Rebecca, was a flop. And now she's battling a bad case of writer's block. When her agent calls with a high-paying ghostwriting opportunity, Olivia is all too willing to sign the NDA. At first, the right-for-hire job seems too good to be true. All she has to do is interview Henry Asherwood, a reclusive mega-billionaire, twice-named People's Sexiest Man Alive, who wants her to write a book about his late grandmother's surprising connection to Daphne du Maurier. But when Olivia arrives at his Malibu estate, nothing is as it seems. The more Olivia digs into Asher's family history, the more questions she has. Before long, she's caught in a tangled web of obsession, marital secrets, and stolen manuscripts. With as many twists and turns as the California coast, the fiction writer is a page-turner that explores the slippery boundaries of creative freedom and whose story we have the right to tell. Now, while I was reading this, Gillian, wow, it was so meta. There are stories within stories within stories. I was like struggling to keep track of the different threads as I was trying to race to figure it out, you know, along the way. So firstly, did this book teach you something that the other genres didn't? And secondly, what was your approach to writing such a complex plot? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always wanted to write a book about a writer, but I didn't, you know, I never really knew how I wanted to do it. And this book came to me during the pandemic. Actually, it was my second book that I wrote during the pandemic. It was pretty long. (laughs) My last book I had under contract when the pandemic had started. And it was the very beginning of the pandemic. And I had just sold the book. And I think I had to turn it in in June. And it was when we were all in lockdown. So I was just at home. I had to write the book. I had nothing else to do. But then this book was sort of in the part of the pandemic where we'd been stuck at home for a while. We were kind of going out, but we weren't really vaccinated yet. And so I just wanted to write something that just really felt fun to me. You know, I didn't I didn't want it to feel like work. I wanted it to feel like something that was joyful because it was the only thing I was doing. (laughs) So I think it reignited a love of writing in me, you know, made me remember why I like to write. And I wasn't writing it because I thought I should be writing it, I think. You know, I was just writing it because it was the story that I felt like telling. It felt like a lot of fun. I knew that it was going to be a mystery and it was going to have complicated twists, but I didn't know what they all were when I started. So I sort of rediscovered my love of plotting and figuring those things out as I went along. And I think what it taught me was to sort of take a step back and that it was more, I was writing about our book when I was writing what I wanted to be writing and not writing what I thought I should be writing. Right. And, you know, there's parallels here with Rebecca. There's places where you've stayed fairly close and there's places where you deviated, etc. 
was it a case of because because you say you learned how to plot but you say you learned how to plot as you were going along which isn't exactly plotting that is kind of an engineered kind of pantsing which mm -hmm. is exactly what I do I hate plotting I'm not yeah. at all interested in it I'll get to a certain point and then I'm like oh shit I'm not sure where to from here so maybe I yeah. should plot <laughs> for the next two chapters is that kind of the approach you had yeah, you know, and I really, I think traditionally I am a pantser when I write, but my last book that I wrote, Beautiful Little Fools, was a retelling of The Great Gatsby from the women's points of view. And so I really plotted everything heavily out for that book because it was a retelling of this original novel and I wanted to make sure I had the scenes in the correct spots or, you know, certain lines. And so I had that book chapter by chapter outlines before I wrote, which is not normally how I write. And I got to the end and I was like, this was a great experience. Why don't I do this more often? <laughs> and then I started the fiction writer and I thought, well, I'm going to have this organized plotting. And I realized I actually have a lot of fun when I don't do that. I think there's something about me not exactly knowing the end and being really excited to figure out what it is as I go along. Yes, I have to revise a lot more when I get to the end. But I think it just sort of took me back to the way I, I normally write and what I love about it, which is sort of discovering as I go along. And I think that's my natural process. Yeah, I saw a quote the other day that made me laugh. It said, your degree of success in life is determined by the number of times you say, fuck it, I'll figure it out. And I think <laughs> that that is very much the motto of pantsers everywhere. It's like, fuck it, I'll figure it out. I love that. I need that above my desk. Yeah, yeah. I'm putting it above my desk as well. Something else you've said now leads me to one of the questions that I did have, which is that, you know, you are inspired a lot by other novels and by real events. So the book you've just mentioned was sort of a retelling of Gatsby. The fiction writers inspired by Rebecca. Margot was inspired by Anne Frank. The Code for Love and Heartbreak is inspired by Jane Austen's Emma. So, so can we talk a bit about that? Is it that you, when you finish one book, you go to another book and you very purposefully go, okay, I am looking at all of these classics and I'm looking at how I might be inspired by them? Or is it a case of, you know, you don't even think about it and these are the things that are on your mind that make you go, okay, I want to, this is something I want to explore for my next book. Yeah, I think it's the second one. You know, I wish that I was organized enough to <laughs> know where I was always going next but I mean, with Margot, I really, I just, I had the idea for that book. I had reread Anne Frank's diary, you know, after many years, I read it as a teenager. And then I read it again when I was in my early thirties and I forgot that she had a sister from my original reading. And I just couldn't stop thinking about that. And I wanted to write a story about Margot. And so I wasn't really thinking about the fact that I was, you know, doing a retelling or even writing historical fiction, which I had never done before I wrote that book. It just was that idea that I knew I wanted to do. And I think sort of all of my books come that way. It's what is fascinating me that I can't stop thinking about at the moment. I mean, the, the Great Gatsby retelling, I've always loved The Great Gatsby, always. I, I reread The Great Gatsby once a year. Always think about the women. And so much of the that book is about the women, the the plot of the book, but the women barely speak in the original novel. And I think I had said something to my agent, like it would be 
really interesting to retell this book from the women's point of view. And as I was saying it to her, she said, oh, I just saw that the copyright is expiring on that book. So it was sort of this moment where it was like, oh, this might be the perfect time to tell this story. But I don't I don't think that I've in- intentionally gone in any sort of a pattern. Obviously, the fiction writer deviates from my other books, although it does have shades of Rebecca. But it was interesting to write about a writer who writes retellings, having been a writer myself who has written retellings. Olivia, the main character in the book, is is really nothing like me. I have never been invited to Malibu to write, <laughs> to ghost write a story for a sexy billionaire. But I think some of the things that she thinks about writing and publishing, you know, were true, are true for me also. Yeah, it was very meta, you know, a writer who writes retellings, writing about a writer who writes retellings. I was just like, mind blown, man. It was awesome. So in the fiction writer, you have a prologue. I don't suppose you have a copy of the book near you. I do, actually. Marvelous. Could you please read us that prologue? Because on the podcast, we have literary agents who look at people's opening pages Mm -hmm. to guide them in terms of polishing up those pages as much as possible. And probably, I don't know, eight out of every 10 times when we see a prologue, they're like, "Mm, I don't know that the prologue's doing the heavy lifting. This is a prologue that worked extremely well. So I want our listeners to hear it. Okay. Last night, I dreamt I went to Malibu again. I stood barefoot on the sand, the cool water nipping at my ankles, and there, high above me, perched on the edge of that magnificent cliff, his stunning house sat as it once had, alive, whole. It had ten bedrooms and was on three private cliffside acres, with a lap pool, a tennis court, and a garden blooming flush with pink and white bougainvillea. But from the beach down below, all I could see was its long wall of privacy-tinted glass windows, slanting out toward the sea. He could see me here, out on the beach. I was certain he could, even in my dream. He was still behind those windows, watching my every step, though I couldn't see him. The glass was one way. But I imagined him there behind the glass so vividly, it had to be real. Until it wasn't. Until the heat from the flames would shatter all the windows, break them apart, send smoke spewing from the piano room down the cliff, evaporating in whiffs into the lonely Pacific. But in my dream, the flames hadn't existed yet. Or maybe they never would. He and his house were there, watching me, wanting me, haunting me. Come back. His voice was a desperate echo, my undoing. The smoke was so thick, even out on the beach, I couldn't see and I couldn't breathe. So that's why I did it in my dream. I turned away from the house and I walked into the bone-chilling water. It was so cold, it numbed me. But I walked into the sea up to my shoulders, my neck, my chin until I could no longer smell the smoke or hear his voice. And then my entire head was underwater and the tide was strong. It sucked me in, held me there. But I wasn't trying to drown. I really wasn't. I was merely trying to escape the fire. Dun, dun, dun. Love that. (laughs) Okay, so I, I mean, obviously that was the first line that came to you, right? Last night I dreamed I went to Malibu. Yeah. So was that always going to be the prologue? That was always going to be the beginning? Or how did it shape up? That was always the prologue. I wrote that first. There is an epilogue in the book, which I'm not going to say too much about because it would really be a spoiler, but the epilogue actually finished the first draft of the book and it didn't have an epilogue. And then when I was revising, I realized I really needed an epilogue. So that sort of came a minute later. And I would say the epilogue and the prologue are really paired together. I think it's necessary to have them both, but I didn't didn't know I was going to have that at first. 
But this is a genre that prologues works well with because we've got this first person narrator. We don't know who it is at this point. Mm -hmm. Chapter one goes to a year ago and that's also written in the first person. So Mm -hmm. the the reader's like, is this the same character? Is this someone else? And again, I don't want to give a lot away because this book (laughs) has got tons of twists and turns. But that is when a prologue works really well because you're setting up this image. The reader isn't 100% sure of who's speaking. And you know, can you speak a bit about the epistolary form throughout the novel without giving too much away in terms of the diary entries, etc.? Yeah. So the fiction writer is has a book within the book. There's novel excerpts from a novel called The Wife that are sort of interspersed within Olivia's present story where she's experienced everything in Malibu. So I think part of what I was trying to do by including, you know, the novel within a novel is, like you said, the book is very meta. So it's a writer writing about a writer and there's excerpts from this novel, but also it's part of the mystery. I think who is writing the novel, who are they writing about? And that sort of all unfolds by the end of the book. Did you write each part of the excerpted novel as you got there? Was it something you worked on up front? Had that in your mind and then wrote the rest of the novel? I'm always fascinated to see how each different writer approaches, you know, the writing of, of their work. Yeah, I actually, I did write everything in the order that it appears in the book. So I sort of knew where I wanted to include the excerpts. But when I revised, I did end up changing a little bit what happened in the excerpts. And I think I added one or two that weren't in the initial draft. So some of them, it was like, I was writing and I knew I wanted to have an excerpt, but I wasn't 100% sure what was going to be in there. So it was sort of a placeholder. And then when, when I revised, I actually pulled all the excerpts out and revised them all together. So they, they made sense and had continuity. But in the original draft, I was trying to just write as it went along for, and I do that with all of my books, I think, even when I have you know, multiple points of view or, or other things interspersed, I try to write the first draft as it, it flows out. And I feel like that really helps me with the pacing. If I try to write them separately, I can never wrap my head around the pacing. And when I do revise, I like to pull stories out and look at them all at once. But in that initial draft, I try to write everything out. So if you compare a book like this to your retelling of The Great Gatsby, right, this kind of book, there's tight pacing, a lot of tension. There's a lot you're kind of hiding from the reader while there's red herrings. They think something's happening, something else is happening, etc. In terms of the retelling of The Great Gatsby, I'm assuming, I haven't read that book, I now want to. I'm assuming that's a lot more literary and we're looking, what, more at social commentary in terms of the woman. How are the, those two approaches different? So actually, it's not that different. My retelling of The Great Gatsby, it's from the points of view of Daisy and Jordan and Myrtle and Myrtle's sister, Catherine. And I sort of reframed the story as who killed Jay Gatsby and that it was actually one of the women. So it is actually a murder mystery. <laughs> so it has some of the similar things you just said. You know, the, the mystery sort of unfolds. There's red herrings. There is a prologue where Jay Gatsby is shot by one of the women, but you don't know which one it is until the end. So in a lot of ways, it was not that different. You know, obviously that's historical because it's set in the years before and during when the Great Gatsby takes place. So it's, I think that's what sets it apart for me. The fact that it's, you know, a historical novel and this is contemporary, but I feel like it's a lot about feminism while being a murder mystery. And so all of my books seem to have that tie. 
I don't know that it was really that much different than the fiction writer. But I love that because, you know, it's kind of, we have a certain expectation of the retelling of The Great Gatsby Mm -hmm. and you've, you know, put that on its head and you've come at it from a completely different angle. So for our listeners, you know, be inspired by all different books and you don't have to stick closely to what that book was in its original form. We're going to be discussing a book soon, which is one of our listeners who has taken Jane Austen and turned her into a kind of detective, you know, and so we have a lot of conventions of the genre coming through, but not Jane Austen as we're expecting how to see her. And of oh, course I need we've... to read that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really, really good. I'm busy reading it now to interview the author now. And you think of things like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, etc. you know? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of fun can be had in terms of taking a book and just, you know, subverting expectations of it. In terms of what you're working on now, Gillian, are you writing another mystery, another thriller? What are you working on? It is a mystery. It's not a gothic mystery, but it is a mystery. It's about a woman who's an actress and she gets hired to play this like best-selling romance novelist in the the movie of her life and she sort of goes for the filming and learns that everything about this romance novelist life is a lie. And so it's both of their points of view. You get to see the actress's point of view in present day as she's sort of trying to uncover the mystery of who this woman is. And then you see the romance novelist point of view in the 1980s before she was famous. So it's, it is another mystery, but it's, it's a little bit different than the fiction writer. It sounds like a lot of fun. So in terms of advice you have for emerging writers, because you've been in this industry for a long time, and we see a lot of writers perhaps publish one or two, maybe Mm -hmm. three books, and then disappear because you're only ever as good as your last book. So it's about, you know, longevity, it's about reinventing yourself, and it's about a lot of stamina. What other advice do you have for people who are trying to break into the industry now, which is, like you yourself said, so different from how it was, you know? Mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. Well, I think I should say that it's, I mean, it's still difficult for me. Like you said, you're only as good as your last book. And so it's, I definitely still get rejected all the time (laughs) and, and, you know, constantly feel like I'm failing at stuff. So it's, I think it's just always about persistence and you sort of have to believe in what you're writing, love what you're doing. You know, you have to be doing it for yourself first, I think, and just, you know, not give up. I think that's my one piece of advice is is not give up. I think in the beginning of my career, I kept thinking, well, if I can just, you know, hang on and make it through all the rejection, then I'll I'll publish a book and and then I'll be successful. <laughs> and it's like sort of like that over and over again with each book. You just have to sort of believe in what you're doing, not give up. Not everything works out. Not every book does well. Not every book I've written has gotten published, but I think it's just I love to write. And I love to write books that I would love to read and I can't stop doing it. So that's sort of my publishing advice. I would say my writing advice is the advice that I got from a writing professor in grad school, which is very simple. It's just butt in chair. And I think it's, you know, we can always find an excuse not to write or find something to do that feels easier. And you really just have to sit down and put the words on the page, even if they're bad. And mine are often bad, but they can be fixed in revision. Amazing. Yeah. Everybody on the podcast hears me say time and again, bum in chair, bum in chair. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's the truth. There is no alchemy. There is no magic formula. But I love that 
you know, even at your level, you, you're getting rejection and there are books that you've written that haven't been published. Mm -hmm. And it really is about the process. If you don't love the writing itself, it's so easy to give up. If all you focused on is the end game of getting published, it's easy to say, okay, well, I, you know, I'm not going to get published. I'm going to give up. But I think there's a compulsion to people like us who create because we simply can't not create. And that's what keeps us going. Right. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think, you know, even once you sell a book, there's so much that can go wrong. (laughs) That's just out of your control that it's, you just have to keep writing books because you want to write books and sort of not get too focused on the other stuff. Thank you so much, Jillian. It was wonderful having you on the show. For our listeners, we're linking to the fiction writer on our bookshop.org affiliate page. If you get the book there, you support an independent bookstore and you support the podcast at the same time. We hope to have you back for the next one, Jillian. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.